keep those California Indians down. Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host, Larry Smith. An apology is a performance unless it's backed by some action. Unless there's some accountability, then then an apology is weak. And in this particular case, it felt like a slap in the the face because it doesn't have any action associated with it. And we're talking about huge trauma. I mean, the, the reality is that we're all still living within the manifestations of intergenerational trauma. How dare somebody say they're sorry and not, um, and then not immediately ask how? What can we do to restore balance? What can we do to to make things right? Today on American Indian Airwaves, an in-depth interview on a Chumash scholar's perspective of Pope Francis's recent apology to Indigenous peoples and the respective First Nations within Canada for its complicity and legacy in committing acts of cultural genocide during the residential school era. All that and more here on American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone blue elk in the black of the night. You can hear, you can hear the whisper in the valley. Mm -hmm. And you know Come a cunny blows to the bar who drum It's the warriors who are marching On July 25th of 2022, Pope Francis apologized to Canada's Indigenous peoples on their land for the church's role in residential schools where Indigenous children were starved, beaten for speaking their Indigenous languages, violently and sexually abused, and endured various forms of forced cultural assimilation such as mandatory Christianization plus more in what Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission called cultural genocide. The address to the First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples was the first apology on Canadian soil by the Pope as part of a tour to heal deep wounds that rose to the fore after the discovery of unmarked graves at residential schools. It's estimated that between 1881 and 1996, more than 150,000 indigenous children were separated from their families and brought to residential schools that were sanctioned by the Canadian government and operated by various Christian missionaries. In the United States, Native American nations, communities, and families endured a similar fate as indigenous peoples in Canada. Beginning with the Indian Civilization Act Fund of 1819 and the Peace Policy of 1869, and with the urging of several denominations of the Christian Church, the U.S. government adopted an Indian boarding school policy expressly intended to implement cultural genocide against all indigenous peoples and their respective First Nations. Between 1869 and the 1960s, Hundreds of thousands of Native American children were forcefully removed from their homes and families and placed in boarding schools operated by the federal government and the churches. 
In fact, by 1926, nearly 83% of Indian school-aged children were attending boarding schools. There's been a lot of discussion and reactions to the Pope's apology, but what does the Pope's apology mean for indigenous peoples? Will the Vatican do more besides apologize, ask for forgiveness, or will there be substantial actions holding the Vatican accountable for its violent colonial legacy of cultural genocide still impacting indigenous peoples today? In today's program, Marcus Lopez, co-host and executive producer of American Indian Airwaves, interviews Dr. Dina Dart about what the Pope's apology means from one indigenous perspective and what does that mean for California indigenous peoples and the role the Vatican played in its legacy of genocide. Dr. Dina Dart is a member of the Coastal Band of the Chumash Nation, the former curator of the Native American Collection at Portland Art Museum, and the founder of Live Oak Museum Consulting, based out of Eugene, Oregon, an organization committed to reshaping museum narratives and assisting institutions in their efforts to be more accountable and responsive to Native American communities. This is Marcus Lopez speaking with Dr. Dina Dart on the significance and complications in the Pope's apologies in the violent legacy of Canada's residential and U.S. boarding schools. The Pope visits Canada, Indigenous people looking for action. The Pope visit reflects many different issues regarding the Catholic Church as well with indigenous people. The last papal visit to Canada was Pope John Paul II in 2002. Survivors and leaders of indigenous communities say that they want financial compensation, artifact recovery, support in bringing in alleged abusers to justice, and the release of records relating to the schools which operated between 1831 and 1996. Some indigenous leaders also want the Catholic Church to rescind and renounce a 15th century colonial doctrine that justified dispossessing indigenous people issue as papal bull or edicts. These papal bulls open up their archives for survivors to find their families and to piece together what happened in the schools. In addition to that, Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops promised to raise $30 million for healing, culture, and language revitalization and other incentives. But within that, many indigenous people ask themselves, and that is, in 2000, October 12, Pope John Paul's second great jubilee year, the Day of Pardon, he was presented on the 508th anniversary of Christopher Columbus' arrival in the New World, quote-unquote, that to rescind the 1493 papal bull called Intracriteria. And this was a reflection of about the rescinding the doctrine and all the following doctrines or earlier doctrines like Dum Diversas 1452 and Romanus Pontifex, the 1455, along with the doctrine of discovery, main one, and that is the doctrine intra-satiria. So we see that a lot of discussions have been in the last few weeks regarding the Catholic Church and the Pope's visit. This reflects the long permanent reminder of this oppression. We are going to 
have an interview with Professor Dina Dart, PhD, Chumash person from Santa Barbara, on the question of the Pope visit and what that means to us. Her scholarly and professional work strives to address the incongruities between public understanding, representation, and true acknowledgement in Native peoples, their culture, histories, and contemporary lives. She earned her MA and PhD from the University of Oregon and has held positions in Burke Museum of Natural and Cultural History and the Portland Art Museum, as well as teaching appointments at the University of Oregon, University of Washington, Northwest Indian College. She recently completed a writing fellowship at the School of Advanced Research, where she revised her book, Manuscripts and Publication, titled Subverting the Master Narrative, Museums, Power, Native Life in California. Dina serves on the Board of Oregon's Museum Association and Confluence Project. Dina Dart is also has Live Oak Consulting. You can look that up at liveoaknative.com. And her particular list of publications is Subverting the Dominant Narrative, like I said before, Reclaiming the Camino in Our Times in Visualizing Genocide, Dina Dart and Mike Murawski, Objective Stories Connecting Collections with Communities, California Sites of Consciousness, Analysis of Mission Museums Narrative, Museum Anthropology, Volume 34, and in 2006, Dina Dart and John Ehrlichson, Little Choice for the Chumash Cattle, Colonialism and Coercion in the Mission Period, Santa Barbara on the American Indian Quarterly. Now, without further ado, let's get with the interview with Professor and Dr. Dina Dart. Thank you, Dina Dart, for being on the American Indian Airways. We have just recently been presented with a visitation from in northern northern continent of the Pope of the Vatican, Pope Francis. And that to me goes into the question of he still have an outstanding and unanswered question to the not only the Chumash for California Indians, if you will, of what we you were part of the panel discussion on the disrobing Sarah, but that effort and your expertise of not only Chumash history, but the culture expresses certain things. So I think, first of all, it's a long intro. The Pope came to Canada. What's your first impressions? Well, first of all, thanks, Marcus, for asking me to to be on your show, I, um, you know, you're, you're somebody who, um, who I respect and admire greatly and who's done so much for our community and raising the visibility of, of native issues in California and beyond. Um, so thank you. It's always an honor to, to collaborate with you. And yeah, we, we collaborated on the, um, Unipero Serra canonization a few years ago and, um, the outrage that was, was felt and expressed among California Indian people at that notion. And, um, and you organized, a. A gathering and a panel discussion about why that the idea of of making Unipero Serra a saint is was a ridiculous notion. He was essentially the architect of genocide in California, and um, and we are still 
you know, reeling and, and um, trying to trying to heal and trying to come back from that, you know, while most of us along the mission trail were so devastated by the impacts of the missions that we lost our languages, we lost most of the aspects of our culture, our traditional cultures, our traditional ecological knowledge. And, you know, it's, it's miraculous, but uh, most of our communities now are coming back from that, you know, 250 years later and cobbling together our cultures and our languages and, um, and even our traditional ecological knowledge, but, but devastating impacts, right? The Catholic church wreaked havoc (laughs) in the Americas and, and an apology is a very, by one person, uh, an apology by one person is a is an insult of the largest kind. I recognize that Pope Francis is a is a liberal, you know, seemingly good-hearted uh, fellow. Maybe the most uh, open-minded of the popes to to date. However. An apology is a performance unless it's backed by some action. There was no discussion of the rescinding of the doctrine of discovery, even though that has been resoundingly the most important uh, action that could be taken by the Catholic Church. Just a statement that they rescind the um, the doctrine of discovery, that they recognize the damage that the doctrine of discovery has um, has done, um, you know, sort of leading the way for uh, U.S. and Canadian policy in regards to Native people and land. The doctrine of discovery still informs law, you know, on a national level, level in, the, in Canada and the U.S. And so just that a statement <laughs> could have gone so far, right? But he, but, but um, he or the Catholic Church, probably more like the Catholic Catholic Church, not allowing him to actually speak those words, because I don't imagine that he acts as a sole individual um, decision maker. Um, he still has to, you know, align with the beliefs of all of his contemporaries, the other cardinals. But, but not only uh, was you know, rescinding or a, a revocation of the doctrine of discovery not done. There was also no, there were no um, statements of subsequent actions that the Catholic Church would take in terms of restoring, uh, returning uh, objects and human remains that are held at the Vatican or, um, or turning over some of the land. And we want to remind listeners, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Dr. Dina Dart, a member of the Coastal Band of the Chumash Nation, on the Pope's recent apology to Indigenous peoples up in Canada for the Canadian government and the Church's role in its legacy of residential schools and cultural genocide, and what the apology means in terms of its significance and complications for Indigenous peoples. You're listening to one California Indigenous perspective on the Pope's apology. And now back to the interview. And we're talking about Canada, right? The the Pope hasn't come here and to talk to California Indian people, but these are the same things that you know that we would that we would be asking for. You know, um, somebody posted on Facebook. It might have been El Frank or Wishoyo Alvitri maybe Cindy Alvitri, oh, oh, one of the Tongva 
um, strong, you know, activist community members in the Tongva community um, said that the the cape that belonged to Juana Maria, the last woman found on San Nicolas Island, was sent to the Vatican. You know, so these things that are really precious, ceremonial, sacred objects, are held by the Catholic Church in, in the Vatican with no use. What what are the what is the Catholic Church going to do with Juana Maria's cape? If you know those kinds of things would not be a hardship for them to return to California Indian people to curate and care for and um, and return into ceremony. I mean, it's really simple actions that could be taken um, rather than just the performance of uh, reconciliation. We don't want an apology unless, of course, it's backed by a, a whole plan of action about how to reconcile, how to restore balance to these places that have been so destabilized, so, you know, in some in some cases completely destroyed. I mean, it's it's as as I said a minute ago, you know, it's miraculous that that we are still that you and I are still identifying as Chumash and still claim those homelands as ours, that we're still we're still doing um, things to to maintain our culture in that place and to perpetuate our life ways and our values in that place, it is a miracle, right? We, we don't have land. We don't have any resources. We don't have, you know, we don't have the support of the federal or even the state government. And, and, um, and those coastal tribes, not only the Chumash, but the Ohlone and Salin and the Esalen, the Tongva, the Juaneño, all of these tribes that were so devastated by the missions are are still miraculously, you know, hanging on and and preserving and protecting those homelands and and practicing um, even more strongly now than ever our our cultural lifeways. But but with no help, <laughs> with zero help from the government, zero help from the church. Right? I I don't I suspect Marcus. I've never talked to you about this, but I just learned that several of my ancestors are buried in a cemetery in a cemetery um, in Montecito, an unmarked cemetery. Um, that's actually owned by the diocese. And Teresa Romero and I were talking about how can we, is it possible to, to get the local diocese to transfer that land ownership over to the coastal band or to a coastal groups or, or at least a group of us that have ancestors in that cemetery? What business does the, the Catholic Church have owning that piece of land? They're, it's completely unmarked. They're not they're not caring for it. Um, so it's in complete disrepair. There are only like five headstones that are visible. Um, the first thing we need to do is ground penetrating radar and locate where all the graves are. And, and then, um, but they're not doing that. So, you know, those are the kinds of things. I mean, we have a whole raft of actions that we could present to the Catholic Church <laughs> if they actually seemed amenable to, to put their, you know, their money and their power where their mouth is. That's my feeling, <laughs> maybe more words than, than, than you anticipated. But I, I, one thing that you and I talked about yesterday was this, you know, the idea of the, the land acknowledgement being just, you know, just one more performative box checking kind of thing. And that's what this feels like too, you know, um, unless there are actions, unless there's some accountability, then, a, then an apology is weak. 
And in this particular case, it felt like a slap in in the face because it doesn't have any action associated with it. And we're talking about huge trauma. I mean, the the, the reality is that we're all still, um, you know, living within uh, the manifestations of intergenerational trauma. We're still reeling, you know, how, how dare somebody say they're sorry and not, um, and then not immediately ask how, what can we do to restore balance? What can we do to, um, to make things right? That's the way that I was taught to apologize. You know, uh, you don't just say you're sorry. You say, you know, I, I take responsibility for, um, for my actions. And in so doing, I'm going to ask you, what can we do together to restore balance and healing um, in this place where I have caused damage? You know, that that's an apology. You know, we know that. We know our manners, Marcus. <laughs> this guy, this guy apparently does it. That's so important because even within that particular doctrine of um, Catholicism, there's ways to, to create some atonement. Uh, and that's what you're talking about in their language. I think what you're talking to is get some respect for the people, first people of the land, and what their history is, and just uncover this truth, this untold truth. I'm going to read something to you from Caravan Williams, north of Mexico, and because you, t- I think one of the things you're talking about is the performance, and you are, and the reason I want to talk with you is because you've examined this performance of history and how ridiculous it is, which I want to read something from Gary McWilliams and it's called the fantasy history. And when I read it, I want you to take notes, but it mentions certain things and I'll just read it. Long, long ago, the borderlands were settled by Spaniards, grantees and caballeros, a gentle people accustomed to the luxurious softness of fine clothes, to well-trained servants, and to all the amenities of civilized European living. Inured to suffering, kindly mission padres overcame the hostility of Indians by their saintly example and the force of a spiritual ideal, much in the manner of a gentle spring rain driving the harsh winds of winter into the skies. Life was incompatibly easy and idolent, in those days, there were none of the rough struggles for existence that beset the Puritans of New England. The climate was so mild, the soil so fertile, the Indians merely cast seeds on the ground. <laughs> all were a chance to deposit them and relax in the shade of the nearest tree while, while prevalent and kindly nature took over. Occasionally, when the field hands will interpret this siesta long enough to open up one's eye and lazily watch the corn stalks shooting up from the golden light. And of course, when he was writing this, it's a satire of this fantasy heritage. Talk about that. This reminds you of certain things about mm-hmm. this history within North America, within the mm-hmm. continent. There's some parallels with Canada, with the British Empire, and with uh, the new colonies. The, the people back east, the first contact people like east, the Caribbean, the, uh, uh, the Mexican Gulf, the western uh, coast, we're all first contact people, so we got the brunt of it. 
yeah. talk about to us. We just heard about this fantasy heritage. How does this narrative, this master narrative, fall into what the Pope, not only what the Pope was talking about, but a lot of these liberal individuals throughout the Americas, if not the world, is trying to, number one, are they trying to reassert uh, their their cloak over their losing flock? Or are they trying to create a narrative in which is, like I said, a performance per excellence of the platform and the media that they are presenting? A long question. Talk about the fantasy heritage. Yeah, well, ultimately, it's always economic, right? Marcus, I mean, um, the the creation of a narrative serves the serves the the, the developer of that narrative, right? And so, um, in the in that particular case that Kerry McWilliams is talking about, he's talking about this this notion of the fantasy Spanish narrative, um, and it was one that that was was about taming. California or taming the landscape in the minds of Americans to have them come west, right? And um, and so 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 crafting it in a way that that um, that folks that might settle in California could imagine themselves in this opulent, right? Um, tamed, absolutely tamed, fertile landscape, um, free of any kind of danger and risk. And if so, as as you know, my my work talks a lot about narrative. Period, and how the erasure of the native narrative was handy <laughs> for folks that that were interested that had economic interests in California right so if we were all gone then we would no longer pose a threat and in some cases like at the um the the big expos the the big um the big world's fairs they if native people were represented at all they were represented as a possible workforce right they were represented as um, beautiful maidens that could be taken as wives and um, and and well um, suited young men for that could that could serve as ranch hands or in your you know your plantation uh, livelihood and they and they crafted that narrative for everywhere that had indigenous people um, and so the people of the Philippines were were cast that way the you know uh, Alaska was cast that way California absolutely. And so, yeah, it, it, it always uh, precedes, you know, the, um, the, the, the flooding of, of um, you know, Western ideals and, and it, it economy. And, um, and so it was important, um, you know, California was seen as, as kind of wild frontier at one time. And so they had to craft this, this notion of this the, the the interesting thing that most people don't know is that the folks that actually colonized California were brown people. They were not white people from Europe. They were predominantly uh, native and African descent people from Mexico who were recruited by agents of Spain, but um, but no one wanted to come to a distant outpost like like Alta California. And so the reality was that it was a kind of a rugged place full of brown people. <laughs> so the fantasy Spanish narrative has has been so pervasive and so um, actually so successful that even the missions portray this notion that 
all of the missions were founded by white folks and that, um, and that they, you know, they, that they brought the, the good word to, um, to the local Indian people and, um, and everybody lived in harmony there, you know, that I, um, as you know, my dissertation research looked at how the 21 missions, um, perpetuate that narrative still and the fourth grade curriculum is aligned with with these ideas and um, fourth graders visit the missions in their area along the, the coast of California and um, and that our that our actual history has been erased and the history of the intermixing between um, Mexican Indian people and people of African descent, with California Indian people like you and I are are descended from all of that mixture. Um, most of us don't have ancestry that goes back to Spain unless it's really far back. Most you know most of us have a mixture of that uh, Mexican Indian uh, ancestry and even African um, uh, descent ancestry. So I'm actually in the in the middle. I might as well put a little plug in for. Um, an exhibition that I'm curating for the Autry Museum that'll open next November and it'll be up for two years called Reclaiming the Camino. And it's all about um, telling the actual story of the, um, the establishment of the missions along our road, along the road that we had been traversing for thousands of years for trade and interaction. And, um, and upsetting or disrupting that really dominant narrative that you know the road was created by the Spanish and it was been it, it and that the establishment of the road and the missions um, had some altruistic non-economic uh, goal when the reality is that the goal was solely economic and Spain utilized the church, first the Jesuits and then the Franciscans to help them colonize so that they could extract all the resources from California and then and then bring their own people to settle it. Most people also don't know that, that, you know, at its height, the, the mission system was sending millions of dollars worth of product to uh, back to Spain. And that was all at the hands, the labor of Indian people and um, at the detriment of our homelands, right? And um, in the process of, of smashing our culture and our life ways and, um, and, you know, beating the indigeneity out of our ancestors. And so that story needs to be told. And we're telling it at the at the Autry, um, it'll be it, it'll be at the Autry Museum for two years, and then we're hoping that it'll then go to the De Young in San Francisco um, after that. So, um, so the the story, the real story, is starting to emerge. Or, I mean, we've known it for a long time, but there are more people telling it in in public spaces now than than ever. And that concludes the first segment of this two-part interview with Dr. Dina Dart, a citizen of the Coastal Band of the Chumash Nation. We're speaking on Pope Francis's recent apology to First Nations peoples up in Canada for the Canadian government and the church's role in cultural genocide in the operation of residential schools. And what does the apology mean for California indigenous peoples from one particular perspective. You're listening to American Indian Earwaves. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. 
we didn't need any book. Then the great spirit met the great love. Indians are Jesus, hanging from the cross, hanging from the cross, in the name of their savior, forcing on us the trinity of the chain, guilt, sin, and blame. The trinity of the chain, guilt, sin, and blame. Hanging from the cross, hanging from the cross, in a delusional grandeur. They lie to us, then lie to themselves about lying to us, about lying to us. Hanging from the cross, hanging from the cross, in the name of the mother, the child, and the human spirit. Indians are Jesus, hanging from the cross. Hang from the cross. song hanging from the cross by john trudell off the album bone days here on american indian airwaves in the final segment of today's program we continue with the second part of our interview with dr dina dart regarding pope francis's recent apology 
to First Nations peoples up in Canada for the Canadian government and the church's role in the operation of residential schools that resulted in cultural genocide. Our conversation focuses on a Chumash perspective and the role the Vatican played in the mission system and its legacy of cultural genocide against California indigenous peoples. Dr. Dina Dart is a member of the Coastal Band of the Chumash Nation, the former curator of the Native American Collection at Portland Art Museum and the founder of Live Oak Museum Consulting, an organization committed to reshaping museum narratives and assisting institutions in their efforts to be more accountable and responsive to Native American communities. This is Marcus Lopez speaking with Dr. Dina Dart, on the significance and complications in the Pope's apologies regarding its violent legacy of cultural genocide. I'm glad that you that you and look forward to the presentation, and I'm glad you're talking to that, that those those missions were were plantations, were economic found uh, for um, um, plantations. Um, yeah, uh, that were reflected the feudal life of Spain and created even uh, even a lot of people don't know that Chumash people were under the Fort Tejon Treaty that got ignored. That's a whole story that we covered here on American Indian Airways. But yet talk about, and this is what a lot of people, when I look at all the articles, want you to view it, want you to view on it. And that is the idea of the admission system, the menorias, uh, the, the treatment of sexual abuse of the padres. From that, going to all the way to even present about the sexual abuse of Catholic Church and the Padres, mm-hmm. variety of official dumbs and from the ground level up to even some uh, uh, some other levels, the Pope didn't talk about that. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of, we need to refresh ourselves as far as what they did in the missions and that completely uh, was absent from the dialogue. Your comments on that, especially when topical um, now, and rightfully so, murdered and murdered indigenous women in LBG communities. Please um, talk about that to us in reference to the church. Yeah, you're right, and and um, the the church has rarely takes responsibility for its uh, its depredations in that particular area um it's it has um in recent history it's been mostly boys right uh young boys but um historically um well it's important to to recognize first and foremost that the church yes the church was guilty of those depredations itself you know it's 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 uh, representatives, the individuals that were aligned with the church, employed by the church, were the ones, you know, are are the ones often uh, committing those crimes. However, they also create an atmosphere in which um, women, um, LGBTQ communities are disempowered also, separated from their homes, right? Separated from their families and communities, which is what was happening at the missions. The women were literally, women and young girls, I don't know if your your listeners are aware of this, but um, there were, there were women's, they call them today women's dorms uh, for, for all young unmarried women 
over the age of eight um, had to stay in these dorms. They were called Monjerios um, at night. And the justification in the, in the written documentation was that they were keeping them safe from the soldiers. But what was happening is that those women, not only were they being raped in the Monjerios, they were also um, subject to these overcrowded conditions. And so the mortality rates in the Monjerios was 10 to 1. Uh, what it was outside of the Monjerio. So if you had a little girl who was turning eight years old, you would, as parents, you would have to, you'd have to turn your little girl over to, to, to spend her nights in this, spend her days toiling, right, in the fields, and then her nights in, in the Monjerio, um, knowing that she was either going to be raped or, um, or, and that she was likely going to die because the conditions were so bad. Um, has anybody ever taken responsibility for that? I mean, can you imagine that, that kind of trauma? And then that kind of trauma that gets passed down from generation to generation, that, the, that, that law, all of those lost girls, and no one ever talks about that. No, certainly no one talks about that in the, in the mission narratives. When I was doing my dissertation research, I interviewed the, the Park Service uh, folks at uh, La Purisima because they actually have a building there that they call the Monjerio, and they speak about it to school groups as being, you know, this is where the girls went at night and they do their crafts and they, you know, they got to be with other girls and they, you know, they painted in this ridiculously artificial uh, positive light. And I confronted them, the two interpreters, park service employees in their little ranger outfits, you know, and, <laughs> and said, are you aware of the actual history? Oh, yes, of course we, and they were, they were all, they knew, they knew the actual history. But that they had made a decision to to make it a G-rated version of the of the story because these were fourth graders. So instead of telling the truth, they actually could tell a complete lie, you know, and and um and paint this this notion that the priests were looking out for these 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 girls and young women, and um and the 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 opposite is true. Um, I I um. I don't know what, I don't, you know, what, when we think about the enormity of the damage and trauma, I don't know what reparations look like, Marcus, you know what I mean? Like, how can we even talk about how to restore balance for the loss of all of those little girls? And, you know, what's even, excuse me, it's, it's hard not, I mean, this, I get emotional in my work all the time. How can, how can you not? But imagine, <clears throat> That the the loss of those those little girls um, and young women, um, the way it's documented, it, it there's this notion that they they died of natural causes and that they're you know so there's they, they don't even get and they don't get their, they never got their own um, graves those little girls and young women they never got their own graves as we know at the missions they were all thrown into a big mass grave an unmarked grave so little girls just tossed in the trash every day but you know um like all year long for the duration of the the time that the missions were in existence you know just like uh, just any uh, commodity throw in the ditch cover over and move on yeah. now um i wanted to ask you that so in that view, what would be some of the remedies that you would want to <clears throat> inform the listeners or inform 
you know, the status quo as far as uh, the church. Uh, what's the beginning phases of that? Um, I know we, we can, we're going to have a whole new show on that, which I don't want to at this point in time. But what are the kind of things that, whether it be in Canada, because there's the similar things, the Baptist or the, you know, Protestant, they, we can't excuse them either. I mean, it's not just the Catholics. But yet, what do we want to see a couple of things for remedies? Educate us, please. Well, you know, a couple of beginning steps have um, have sort of. And we want to remind listeners, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Dr. Dina Dart, a member of the Coastal Band of the Chumash Nation, on the Pope's recent apology to Indigenous peoples up in Canada for the Canadian government and the church's role in its legacy of residential schools and cultural genocide, and what the apology means in terms of its significance and complications for Indigenous peoples. You're listening to one California Indigenous perspective on the Pope's apology. And now back to the interview. The first thing that needs to happen is that we need the stories. We don't we don't even know the stories, right? Those stories were erased. And just, just like we were just talking, because they don't serve the um, the capitalist machine. They don't serve the, you know, the, um, the money makers. And so the, those stories have been completely erased. And so that's the first thing that has to happen is that we need to unearth the narrative, the, the true narrative. And we see there are efforts in Canada and here in the U.S. and specifically in California, the Truth and Healing Commission. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know how well those efforts are going um, I, you know, you'd have to sit down with a, a group of local native people of, of, you know, First Nations folks to ask if they feel like their stories are being captured in a way that really represents their grief and their, their trauma. Um, I don't, my experience with, um, the Truth and Healing Commission, is it commission or council, um, there in California, Marcus? It's a council. Um, I, I, my, my knowledge, because I live in Oregon, I haven't been very involved in those, um, those happenings that are spearhead have been spearheaded by the governor's office. Um, I have been in touch with them so that we can make sure that, that, uh, the development of that narrative, um, makes it into this California Indian narrative project that, um, that I and others have spearheaded. We're, we want to make sure that our stories, not just the stories of our trauma, but also the stories of our revitalization, including all of the um, activism and protection of sacred lands and, and um, cultural places that you yourself were involved, have been involved in since the 60s and 70s, that, that all of these stories, the stories of our, you know, the revitalization of our languages and, and um, the stories of our, the revitalization of our canoe. But yes, the stories of, you know, what we have endured, what we have survived, um, what our, what our ancestors experienced, um, that, that a greater effort, what needs to happen is a greater effort to uh, unearth those stories and make them the narrative, make them the dominant narrative is what needs to occur first. And lastly, Dina, the question of the four little word land, what should we do? What's the proposals to the different institutions, including the, the Vatican? 
what do you see as your vision? Yeah, it's a great question, Marcus. We're seeing um, land uh, restored to indigenous ownership all over the country. And, um, and this is happening among uh, larger uh, governmental organizations. It's happening among corporations. It's happening among um, private landowners. And so many Native groups are positioning ourselves as land trusts and, um, and, and outfitting ourselves with land trust capability, even groups that don't have federal recognition, which is the case among most of the mission tribes, right, in California. And, um, but uh, Sangrea Te is one of the um, ones in California that has been successful as, as a indigenous land trust at receiving land back. And um, so land back is a, is, is a, is a movement and, and it includes us, right? And, um, and that is one way that, that uh, the Catholic church could make reparations is to uh, restore our ownership over some of those mission lands. There's still, there's still hundreds of acres in California that are um, managed by the diocese, um, either the local diocese or even the diocese in Spain. And like that, that uh, parcel of land in Montecito is a perfect example. There's no, there's no good reason for the Catholic diocese to still maintain ownership of that land. Why shouldn't it be transferred back to us? So there are many models now to follow. There, there are, you know, hundreds of precedents that have been set. It could be a very straightforward thing to transfer land, transfer land back to um, the indigenous peoples of California. And, um, and it could go a long way for us. I mean, as landless people, we have really suffered. We haven't been able to live together as a community. Um, we have to live in places like Santa Barbara, where the the rents and the cost of living is exorbitant, right? I mean, most most of our people can't afford to live in Santa Barbara, have to live in Lompoc or Somis, you know, in Ventura County, places that are, you know, uh, um, are not Santa Barbara. And, um, and so that, you know, being able to live um, in community together is something that we haven't been able to do for a couple hundred years. And it's, and it's wrong. And, um, and we do, so, you know, we, uh, so that, so um, the first step in that happening is that we, we receive some land back, um, you know, for, for a short time, uh, one of the tribes along the coast had a small parcel, parcel of land, but the way that it was, um, that way that it was zoned, the way it was zoned was that we couldn't live on it. Right. So the, the crazy thing is that there are these laws that, that continue to keep us from even living on our own lands. And um, and, you know, the folk, your listeners, the folks that are, you know, maybe the maybe they are members of the Catholic Church that can put pressure on their local diocese. Maybe they are business owners that can um affect how pa policy is written in Santa Barbara County or in, in California. Um, that there's, there are action steps that folks can take um, at every level. And, um, and even, you know, there are tribes uh, like the Duwamish Nation in Seattle and the Chinook Nation in Portland that actually have websites where they receive rent uh, from, from the people who live there.
imagine that if Santa Barbara residents actually paid rent to us, we might be able to buy our own land at some point. <laughs> not to say the um, not to say the part of the repatriation, not only land but resources, oil and uh, gold and gas and all those many many other things that we're talking about the accumulation of capital, accumulation of wealth that that the native people first people throughout the continent and still going on in Mexico. We had a program last week on that, uh, the mega projects and mega projects up in Canada, the pipelines, the mineral extractions and, you know, and all that that goes with that. But it's been a delight, by the way, speaking with you on these uh, very important issues. And if people want to contact you, how can they contact you? Just my, my first and last name at gmail.com. So it's D-E-A-N-A-D-A-R-T-T at gmail.com. And my I also have a website, and it is www.liveoaknative.com. Live Oak uh, Consulting is the name of the business. And um, if you're interested in decolonization trainings or any kind of museum work, um, equity and inclusion kind of work that... Um, really prioritizes native values and goals. Um, send me an email. Um, or if you want us to talk about strategy, how to get land back to the uh, coast of California people, I'm happy to talk about that too. And that was Dr. Dina Dart in the second segment of our two-part interview here on American Indian Airwaves. She was speaking on a California indigenous perspective regarding the legacy of the Vatican and its mission system in relationship to Pope Francis's apology this past July 25th in Canada. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're going to conclude the show with a snippet from the California Indian Storytellers Association CD, When the Ancestors Whisper, Stories from Native California. In order, you hear from Daryl Babe Wilson, Ernest Siva, and Georgiana Sanchez in closing thoughts and wishes on California Indigenous stories. All of the old stories, and they're not old stories. They're lessons in how to conduct yourself in, in life or in a situation, how to best that bad situation. The way Grandpa Ramsey would say, how to best the bad situation. But they always have a, a moral. Almost every story has a moral to it. The people sitting around listening, the kids listening, Lamsa, he said, never forget who you are and where you came from, and don't forget your language, because the language retains it all. Not everyone followed that, of course, but those who did were able to keep certain things alive. If we're drifters, like or lost people, as Lamsa said, you won't have any roots, you'd be lost. And we don't want to be lost. To remember instead of to dismember, you know, to remember that as we are remembering, we are actually helping to heal generations of, uh, of woundedness, you know. 
And so that is especially important for our own people. But the stories, especially in this day and time, I believe are for whoever happens to show up to hear them. You know, we tell them for our young people. But there's wonderful people who come and sit around the fire. And some of our old people say, you know, everyone that's here is meant to be here. So if they're sitting around the fire listening to the stories, they're supposed to be there listening to the stories, you know. And it might inform them, too, about what it is to be human in the world so that when they go out and do whatever it is they do in the world, that they remember, you know, what it is to be human in the world, yeah. The moment of silence is over. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guest, Dr. Dina Dart. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Star, Kupa Aina, John Trudell, the California Indian Storytellers Association, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studio of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. Sleep caged against their fear. They try not to become what they've endured. Wearing their souls on the thread. The moment of silence is over. And for the innocent, you can't justify why your freedom manifests on their graves. Blood never comes clean from the guilty minds Nor the hands that hold the chains In a rhythm of resistance We still fight for our lives In this war that never ended We've outdrawn your lives Let our actions speak Silence is over.